Eh bien, bonjour. Ah ouais, c'est trop bien d'être ici ce matin. Alors, je ne sais pas si vous comprenez le français. Est-ce que quelqu'un comprend le français Levez la main. Ah, je vois. Oh, raise your hands real high, OK. Est-ce que je peux voir qui comprend le français Un, deux, trois. Wow, we got like seven people who speak French. I'm recruiting. OK, please. Thank you so much. Hey. Great to be here this morning. It's a real delight. Eric, thank you for your invitation again, okay? And uh, you have an open invitation to Geneva, Switzerland. I'd just like to make that really official. Please come, take your wife. Come on, okay? You can bring the whole church. If you guys want to come on a Reformation tour, I'll do the tour for you, okay? I won't organize it. I'll just do it in Geneva. But that'd be a great, great thing to do. So um, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. It's a delight. We are indeed on a short furlough. Actually, um, our mission, GMI, Grace Ministries International, is having an annual Uh, well, not their annual. They have a conference every so often for all the missionaries around the world, and we're about 350 or 400 right now. And you know, this year is John MacArthur's 50th anniversary, and so they decided since GMI is from Grace Community Church to kind of bring everybody together and celebrate that. So uh, we're going to be starting that in two weeks. And so we thought that we would come, my wife Meg and I, Meg is here, of course, and um, that we would come early for a couple of weeks and then stay a little longer and go visit churches. And so here we are. So thank you so much. It's a real delight to be here. The first thing I'd like to do, I'd like to do three things. First of all, I'd like to thank you as a church, okay? And I'm going to show you one picture because this picture will symbolize the thank you. Just to make it clear as to what happened. A couple of years ago, we were at Shepherd's Conference. We in, ran into each other. And we sat down, and Eric said, oh, you know, tell me about your stuff or what's going on. And he said, do you have any specific need? And just at that time, my car was 23 years old, really neat car. I mean, you're going to see a picture of it in just a second. But it was so old and so rusted that the French government said, no more. So we had, we were forced to change it. And just at that time, Eric said, do you have a need? So we worked it out, and this is... There it is. The old car on the right, the 23-year-old Opel. Okay, have you ever heard of an Opel before? Yeah, so okay, good. And then now we got a four-year-old Peugeot. Okay, very nice car with a GPS. Man, I feel really big time. So I'd like to thank you so much and Meg too because it's a really nice car. And now when I drive, I don't feel like I'm in an old car, but I'm in a new car, so I feel really good about myself. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it does make a little difference in life, just a little bit. So I've, of course, my heart is not into the car, but I really like it. So thank you so, so much. Okay? <laughs> so really appreciate it. Now, the second thing I'd like to do as Eric asked me to do, is to give you a really quick overview of our ministry. I'll go really fast, okay? Um, just to kind of get and understand what our ministry is, what we do. So what I've decided to do is to put a PowerPoint presentation together, which gives you 33 years. We've been over there for 33 years. 33 years in about five minutes, okay? So I'm going to talk super fast, and uh, here we go. Can you hear me? Do I need a mic or are we okay? Okay? Is this okay right here? All right, good. I'll just start. Okay. So this is it, 1983 to 2018. That's what we looked like 35 years ago, and that's what we look like now, sort of, okay? So this was me in 1976. I actually backpacked from Switzerland to India. I was kind of a hippie, uh, kind of, and uh, actually <laughs> met a missionary in New Delhi, India, on November 4th, 1976, who led me to Christ. I told this story last time I was here, so I won't go into the details, but that's what I looked like then. But the Lord gloriously saved me. And this is Meg in 1974. She was an exchange student in Japan. She's on the left here in a kimono. And it was during that time when she was on the southern island of Kyushu that she, all by herself, as she was reading the Bible, it was a Billy Graham New Testament, read the last page on how to become a Christian, and then embraced Jesus Christ as her Savior. So me in India, her in Japan. And then guess what? She came back, and she became a flight attendant with Pan Am. So there is Meg in her flight attendant class with Pan Am. Anyone ever flew Pan Am? 
Okay. Yes, one person. Thank you very much. Okay. And then this was me uh, because I became a flight attendant also after college. And so guess what? Well, we both met at the crew lounge at Kennedy Airport. So this is a great Pan Am terminal, Kennedy Airport. And of course, the heart symbolizes our love. Okay. That's been great. And then from there, we got married. I'm going fast. Okay. From there, we jumped and we moved to California to go to seminary because I was sensing the call of God to go back to Geneva where I was actually raised. And so um, we went to Grace Church, and then we uh, Meg came. She uh, she came also, and she worked at the church while I was doing seminary. And then in 1986, five actually December, I got ordained. And then in 1986, we left. And so our first destination was Paris. Um, my, my goal: I was born in, born in Paris, but raised in Geneva as an expat kid. Uh, there was no way of getting us to Geneva at that point, so we ended up going to Paris, and we were there for 10 years church planning. And uh, once we uh, finished that church, then we finally were able to move to Geneva. So Geneva is right there in the center of Europe, surrounded by France. That's why it's French-speaking. And, um, and this is what Geneva looks like. It's a beautiful city if you've never been there. Our Eiffel Tower is actually a fountain. It's called the Jet d'eau, okay? And then the mountains in the back are France. And this is kind of cool because it shows you where we live. We live in France. It costs half the price to live in France and in Switzerland. Salaries in Switzerland two to three times higher than in France. So the best deal is work in Switzerland and live in France, okay? So that's exactly what most people do. And uh, that kind of shows we live exactly one kilometer, one mile from the border in France overlooking Geneva. And um, so this is kind of a, just a summary of our ministries, eight ministries. Number one, church planning. This is kind of the coolest of all, I think, okay? So this is Geneva, my rendition of Geneva. The gray dot is Geneva. But the star, number one, is a church that I actually pastored for 11 years in Geneva, okay? And over the next 20 years, there are two already planted, but over the next 20 years, I'm summarizing, this, these are all the church plants that were spawned from that one church, okay? And so about eight new churches, now they're all small, okay? This is the way it is in Europe, but that was the work over 20, 25 years but, uh, from that center church. And this is the one that we left, uh, we started 11 years ago called the EIG from the Mother Church, okay? Now what's cool is if you put all the numbers together, in 1990, that Mother Church, the one church with a star, was 170 people, which in Switzerland most people would call a mega church, okay? These are big churches over there. And it, actually, I'm not kidding, it's a really big church. But if you look 20 or 30 years later almost, uh, that's bad math, isn't it? How many years is that? Yes, right, okay? Almost 30 years later, if you put all the church plants together, you have actually 850 people. So when you stop and think about it, church planning really ultimately does the job of doing the work of missions and seeing people come to Christ. So that's been very, very exciting for us. Sometimes we get discouraged. We move back, look at this slide and go, hey, no, the Lord has actually really done a great work over there. But you do have to be perseverant for this to happen. Second ministry is our church. This is a current church that I started, uh, that we started 11 years ago. And uh, this is not the actual building of the church, okay? Uh, that would be kind of cool. We actually rent the VIP section of the soccer stadium. So if you're inside the VIP looking out, there it is, you can actually see John MacArthur, you're looking into the soccer stadium. So that's kind of cool, except when there's a soccer game, it's a little distracting, okay? So what we do is we put a big curtain so they can't see the soccer game, okay? But usually no soccer games happen on Sunday morning. But that is our church. This is what it looks like on the inside. Uh, at the height of our church, we had 42 nationalities. It's all French-speaking, but with 42 uh, people because Geneva with the United Nations there and the Red Cross and all that, very international city. And so that's what it looks like. And that's me preaching in French, as you can tell, okay? <laughs> Number three is training. Like in every church, we train people. So this is the fundamentals of the faith class. And we do this every year. It's always a really big hit. People love learning just the word and theology, basic theology. 
Then we have the men's group. Like you announce a men's group, we have a men's group once, once a month. And there we're doing uh, Oswald Sanders' book on leadership, which is also in French. Uh, this is training Bible school students in expository preaching. The Geneva Bible Institute, three students said, hey, can you teach me how to preach? Can you teach us how to preach? So we met at McDonald's. I don't have an office since we ran a hotel. So uh, we, they, didn't learn, they didn't actually preach in McDonald's, but this is where we learned the theory of preaching. Okay, But all three of them are going to preach in the church while I'm gone. Two of them have never preached before in their lives. So they're all excited, also a little scared. And this is the women's group. So we do have a ladies' group, and Meg uh, at times teaches it also. So this is Meg at our church, kind of a smaller group on that day. Um, and then also there's a children's workshop. Meg has been involved in for about 33 years in children's ministry. She's like the children's pro in the whole world as far as church ministry is concerned. But she's actually now doing her master's degree in biblical counseling. So uh, that's been really exciting also. And then uh, ministry number four is radio. My mom was actually a radio journalist in Geneva. I, you know, she was an American, moved to Geneva. And she worked at the UN for 25 years, had a radio show called Freely Speaking. But then she moved on. She said, hey, do you want to take over? So I don't, didn't take over because mine is they, they actually asked me to, be a, to, to preach. So my show is one hour a week on Sunday afternoons. And I'm the only French preacher on the radio in Geneva, Switzerland. No competition, no MacArthur, no Swindoll, just me. That's it, okay? So I don't know if that's good or bad, but that is the actual truth. So this is uh, Radio 74, okay? 74 is the Department of France where it's based right next to Geneva. Uh, ministry number five, I was a hockey chaplain in Geneva. I was actually the only hockey chaplain in the history of uh, Switzerland. And um, for 16 years, and this is a, kind of a German paper that did a news report, Ich bin wie ein spiritual water flashing. I am a spiritual water bottle. That was the title because every player has a water bottle, and I said, no, I'm the spiritual one at the end if they want it. So that's what they kind of picked up on. So I'm now a spiritual water bottle pastor, okay? And um, this Meg makes the best brownies in the entire world, and I'm not exaggerating. So the only way I got into that club and they loved me is when I took brownies. So I took brownies every time. And Buffet Bern, that was the day they were going to play a big team called Bern, Switzerland. And so it means eat Bern, go kill him, you know, go get him. I mean, that, that's not maybe real Christian, but it worked really, really well, okay? <laughs> Ministry number six, Reformation tours, of course, John Calvin, right? He preached in Geneva for 25 years, so a lot of people over the years have asked, hey, can you come and do Reformation tours for us? So that's exactly what I do now. So this is a Calvin's Cathedral or St. Peter's Cathedral in Geneva with the fountain in the background, as you can see. This is a tour that we have right in front of the cathedral. And so I did my, actually, my doctoral minister, my, my DM, my demon uh, thesis on this, so I you know, can actually kind of speak somewhat intelligent on all this. And uh, this is the inside of Calvin's Cathedral or St. Peter's Cathedral with a pulpit where he preached for 25 years on the left. And uh, this is another uh, tour that I was giving actually with Mark Tatlock, maybe some of you may know. Uh, this is a, the TMAI tour in front of the four great statues of the Reformation at the Reformation Wall. A lot to see. Americans love this stuff because I think the Americans prefer the Reformation than even the Europeans. I, I, mean, I was raised in Geneva. I knew nothing about it. Didn't even know John Calvin. He was kind of a bad name. It's kind of weird. So it's a long story. That's a whole other topic of conversation one day. But anyway, this is the book. This is my, uh, my thesis that's turned into a book, and we're about uh, finished, almost finished. My, my um, graphic designer in uh, San, San Francisco is working on it, and we're almost done. So it should be done by the end of the year. It's a self-walking guide uh, in Geneva. And then uh, ministry number seven, we had uh, these huge Christmas concerts. We had some very talented musicians in our church. And for 10 years, we did these huge concerts, and we created this, the Geneva International Christian Choir and Orchestra, which we call JICO. 
we had about half, uh, uh, half the people in this whole thing from Geneva and the other half from Romania and different churches. So it was like a big deal. And uh, we rented this concert hall in Geneva for many years and did these massive Christmas concerts. And then we were invited by the United Nations to do a concert. And so that's kind of a neat shot because we're in the big room. You know, there's two big UN places, one in New York, one in Geneva. And uh, this is kind of unique. I mean, to have a concert there took a lot of work, but it did it. But the next picture is my favorite because here I am under the UN seal uh, presenting the, the, the concert. I mean, that's like very unique situation to be able to do that. And we know a lot of people came from the UN on their way home. They came to the concert and it was really, really exciting. So, you know, ways we're trying to find unique ways to evangelize people in Geneva. So that was the way it worked out. Ministry 8, this won't work. The video's not going to work, I don't think. But anyway, yeah, so anyway, I'm, I'm a drummer, but I don't think it's... Moving to the next slide. There we go. So and then finally, uh, leisure time. We do have a beautiful place. That is one of the great perks of Geneva. The ministry is not always easy, but the perks of, as far as beauty are absolutely incredible. So we, this is just uh, 10 minutes. If you drive up from our house 10 minutes, we live on the flank of a mountain. This is on the top of the mountain on a day where the fog hit low. And so we're over the clouds. Below that is Geneva and our house. And so we often go up to the sunshine and enjoy it. So that's actually our son and his uh, fiance there just kind of, you know, singing the sound of music there. <laughs> this is a really tough one. I mean, we are recruiting, so if you'd like to come and uh, work on evangelism, please come, okay? So this is the way we do it. There is skiing. This is one hour from our house. Actually, this is interesting. This restaurant has uh, been written up as the eighth most beautiful view in the world as far as a restaurant is concerned. And you're overlooking the Mont Blanc. This is the great glacier of the Mont Blanc, highest mountain in Europe. And down there, you can't see it, is Chamonix. Chamonix is a town. It's where you're really high up here. So... It's a, it's a great place. It's an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous place. Uh, we also love to go like biking and hiking, and so we have a lot of lakes from the uh, snow flows, you can imagine. And then this is the March family. Maybe you, you know them, maybe you don't. Uh, James and Julia March, they came and worked with us for the last four years and uh, been a really great help to us. And then um, finally, this is our family. This is actually a shot. It's not Photoshopped. Okay, our daughter's an artist. We say, hey, let's take a picture. Let's all jump. It's several years old, but they actually jumped, and boom, they took the picture, so it turned out pretty well. So anyway, John William, uh, he's an international, he's a businessman. He's lived in Morocco for five years, and now he's just in the process of moving to Dubai, and he's a, a telecom fraud busting guy. And so he travels all over the world, and they help bust fraud in the telecom industry. Kind of interesting, uh, and trying to be an ambassador for Christ there, of course. Oops, sorry. And this is James. He's our youngest, and he lives in Dubai. He's a flight attendant for Emirates Airlines, and he's about to get married on September 5th to a beautiful and wonderful uh, young lady from South Africa, Salumi, and uh, loves the Lord, so we're really excited about that. And when you're a flight attendant from, um, uh, with Emirates, you can choose destination uh, weddings, Bali. Not Mali, Bali, okay? Really different island, beautiful island in <laughs> Indonesia. We get to go for 180 bucks round trip. Yes, okay? <laughs> and then our daughter, Kim Lee, is our musician, and she's currently in Paris trying to figure out the next step of her life. So that's where Kim Lee is in Paris right now. And four ways you can help us. Number one, take a prayer card. On the back, there's some prayer cards, little tiny ones this year. You can please take one. That'd be great. Number two, just write your email address on the clipboard if you'd like to receive our newsletters. We'd love to send that to you. Number three, read our newsletters if you're interested, okay? <laughs> and number four, pray. Pray for our future because we've, asked, we've uh, told the church that we think it's ready to be passed on to someone. So in the next two to three years, we'd like to see a French-speaking pastor take over the church. I'm a church planner. That's what we do. We start churches and leave. 
So we're going to leave that church probably in the next two or three years. The question is, what do we do? I'm still really, really young, okay? I'm 62, and I'll be about 65 when that happens. So what will I do after that? That is the big question. So if you want to pray for us, that would be really, really useful. And so we thank you very much. And if you want more, you can also go to thegracechurch.org slash glass if you get more information. So that's it. That is our ministry in a few minutes. Voila. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to open the word this morning. Lord, we do thank you so much for the privilege of uh, being here this morning. <clears throat> and we uh, ask that you would now open our eyes and our hearts to your word, and that our hearts would throb with excitement as we learn about the grace of God. Lord, we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, when we were dialoguing with Eric, I asked him, you know, what would you like me to preach on? And he landed on the topic of the grace of God. And that turns out really good because this is actually my absolute favorite text in the whole Bible. It really is. I know all the Bible is inspired, but this is my absolute favorite. So I invite you to take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. And the reason I like this so much is, first of all, because the grace of God is uh, powerful and um, very, in a way, disturbing. You're going to see this in just a minute. But also because I believe that this passage will explain to us, and you're going to understand better, why missionaries are missionaries. Um, Most churches have missionaries. They send missionaries out. Why do missionaries do what they do? Why would a missionary leave his country and go spend 33 years in a different country? Okay, it's sort of my country, America. Over there is sort of my country. But for Meg, Meg married me. I took her over there. She's been there for 33 years at great expense in a way. You know, leaving family, leaving familiarity, leaving your country, um, you know, leaving Krispy Kreme donuts. It's really hard, you know. And, uh, but I'm kind of kidding, but not really, because there are sacrifices that are required. And so why would someone give his life for that? And I believe that this parable explains that really, really well. And I think that when you understand the true nature of grace, you're going to realize that grace is really unfair. It's actually very disturbing because that is what you will want to conclude as you go through this. Wait a minute, this isn't fair. And we're going to realize that grace is not something that's fair. Grace is nothing but mercy. And um, what is grace? Grace means the freely given unmerited favor and love of God. It is receiving from God what we don't deserve. And what we don't deserve is salvation. What we do deserve is hell, right? Absolutely, the wages of sin is death. We deserve hell for our sins. God, because of the sacrifice of Christ, has given us salvation. That's a mind blower. That never actually should have happened except in the plan of God. And so this is what we want to see today. So my outline is going to be very simple. It's, going to, it's the parable of the workers. It's going to be the parable, then the purpose, and then the principles. The parable, the purpose, and the principles. So let's kind of go through this parable, parable and um, I hope this really thrills you as it does me. So we're in chapter 20, verse 1, and we read this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So it's very important to notice in verse 1 that, that Jesus here, as he's talking, is talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he's trying to describe it. He's, trying to, he's going to come up with a parable to describe an aspect of the kingdom of heaven, of God's rule on earth. And what we're going to see, the whole thing here is on grace, okay? But that's the point here. Verse 1, and we went out early in the morning to 
hire laborers for his vineyard. So there's a rich landowner, a house ruler, literally, who owns a vineyard. And on the way up here, we saw all these vineyards. So I thought about this parable because grape harvest time is here. And so most of these owners weren't able to just keep a staff of laborers. And so they went to the city square. That's where you picked up these, um, these laborers, these day, 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 wages, day laborers. And he goes to the uh, town square to hire laborers. And it's early in the morning, okay? It is 6 a.m., the crack of dawn. The Jewish day started at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m., And so he goes to the village square. In verse 2, now when he had agreed with the laborers for Daenerys for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. So they discuss about the wage. They agree to one denarius. Now, one denarius, very important, is extremely important to know because that is the day's salary or wage of a Roman soldier. And they were well-trained people. Going into a vineyard didn't require a lot of training. So they agreed to a very good salary one denarius to go pick grapes. So these guys are really excited. They go, yes, we got you know, one full day salary for work paid like a soldier. Verse 3, and he went out about the third hour and saw another standing, saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So now it's the third hour. It's 9 a.m. And he goes back to the marketplace and what does he see? Others standing idle in the marketplace. So what does he do? He hires them, verse 4 tells us. He says, you too go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So here we don't know the amount that's promised, but they trust him. He's apparently a well-known vineyard owner. They trust him, and he says, I will give you what is right. They go, great, we know him. He's a generous guy. They go, they're super happy to have been hired at 9 a.m. Apparently this man has a good reputation. Verse 5. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. Repeat situation. The landowner goes out again in the marketplace. And now, this is the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Which means three, high noon and 3 p.m. High noon and 3 p.m. And what does he see? He sees laborers in the market, standing idle. And he does the same thing, it says. So it's high noon. It's really hot right now, okay? And, uh, and he hires this guy. And again, we don't have an exact explanation as the amount promised, but he's a trustworthy man. They're all excited, got hired at noon, got hired at 3 p.m. They go also into the vineyard to work. Verse 6. In about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You too go into the vineyard. Okay, now this is the 11th hour. It is 5 p.m. The landowner again goes to the village square. He's just always going out there to find these guys. And guess what he sees? Workers still waiting to be hired. This is one hour before the end of the day. And he says, why aren't you working? Because they say, well, no one's hired us. So what does he do? Hires them on the spot. Imagine being hired at 5 p.m. And he goes and he works. And apparently, now we don't know this, but it says rightful pay is no doubt promised them also for the work he's about to do. Nothing is said about the pay. But they trust this guy. Rightful pay. Okay. So there's the story. There's the basic story. The landowner goes to the village square because he needs his grapes picked. And he hires people at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. Sends them into the vineyard. That brings us to verse 8. It's the end of the day. 
6 p.m. Ladies and gentlemen, it is pay time. Pay time. Let me ask you a question. Real honest. Do you like getting paid? Thank you. I'd like to hear that more. Do you like getting paid? Oh, yeah. Okay. Hey, let me tell you something. Never feel guilty about getting paid. Ever. Why not? Because Jesus said it was okay to get paid. In Luke 10.7, he says, a laborer is worthy of his wage. Okay, so these guys are tired. It's the end of the day. It's 6 p.m. They're hungry. Maybe they're grumpy. All they want to do is get their money and go home. So look what happens in verse 8. When the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wage, beginning with the last group to the first. Now, two very unusual things happen here at pay time. First of all, in verse 8, the landowner asks the steward to pay the last hired worker first. Now, I work in Switzerland. They're really logical. I don't, that does not sound logical to me. I would have done it the opposite way. I would have started with the guy who worked the longest and then paid the guy who worked less last. He inverses that. So those who worked very little at the beginning of the line, those who worked for a long time at the back of the line. That's a little different. Okay? That's not Swiss, that's for sure. Okay? But there's a second thing that happens that's strange here. At pay time, it's, it's regarding the amount paid to each worker. You see, the workers, verse 9 says, and when those who were hired about the 11th hour came, they each received a denarius. Wow. The workers that were hired at the end of the day, at the 11th hour at 5 p.m., who worked actually less than an hour, because how long did it take them to go from the village square to the field? transportation to and from work, okay? So they probably worked less than an hour. They're at the front of the line. They get paid, and boom, in their hand, one denarius. What's the reaction? If that's you or me, this is a reaction. Yes, the best day of my life. Folks, isn't this every man's dream? Little work, much pay. (laughs) And that's what everybody wants, right? So this guy is going, are you kidding? I just worked an hour and I got an entire day's pay. I mean, can you imagine the talk in the line? The people back there who aren't seeing anything? Oh man, and they're talking like crazy. This is the best day of his life. So what do you think the guys at the back of the line are thinking when they hear what happened in front? I'll tell you exactly what it is. They're going, oh, baby, this is a good day. They're going, the guy up there just got one Daenerys for one hour's work. I just worked 12 hours. Let's do a little math. One times 12 is 12. Oh, today I'm going to get 12 denarii, two weeks pay for one day's work. That's what they're thinking. You go, are they really thinking that? Yes, they are. Look at verse 10. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. That's exactly what they were thinking. They thought, this is a great day. But look at the rest. And when they, those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, and they also received each one denarius. So, as the people were going getting paid, suddenly it was realized, and this started talking back in the line, that everyone was receiving one denarius, the exact same amount. 
Whether you worked one hour or 12 hours, you got one dinner. So, okay, let me stop one moment and ask you this question. Tough question. Do you think that's fair? Are you uncomfortable? <laughs> I hope you are because that's the whole point of the parable. He wants us to be uncomfortable. Is it fair or not? Ugh. It's complicated, isn't it? It's complicated. And that's why in verse 10 it says, and when they received it, they grumbled. Or verse 11, is it? Yeah, verse 11. And when they received it, they grumbled to the landowner, saying, the last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. Are you serious, sir? I mean, we worked 12 hours. I mean, that hot Israeli sun, the Mideastern pounding and burning and scorching, and they all get the same pay? I understand they're grumbling. Why do they complain? Not because the owner paid the last workers hired one denarius each, but because they did not receive more, because they were expecting more. Now you've made them equal to us who have burned the burden of the scorching heat of the day. That's right. That's right. So I, in a way, I totally understand the reaction of unfairness. So how does he respond? Verse 13. But he answered and said to the, one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. For I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? The key here is verse 13. He says, I'm not doing anything wrong. I mean, can I do what I want with the money I have? Yeah. Was he unfair to pay the last worker one denarius? The guy who only worked one hour? No. That was like super generous. That wasn't unfair. That was like super generous. Was it unfair for him to pay the guy's that worked, let's say, six hours or three hours or nine hours, one denarius? No. That was like super generous. Was it unfair and wrong for him to pay the guys hired first at 6 a.m. one denarius? No. That was actually really good pay. That was the pay of a Roman soldier. Actually, you see, the owner was good to all of them. They all got more than they deserved. That's the whole point here. Some got way more than deserved, but they all got more than they deserved, which means that the owner was actually good and generous to all. That's the key. Problem here is not the owner. It's the attitude of those guys who got hired first. Their eye was envious, verse 15 says. So that's the parable. What's the purpose of the parable? Why is it there? Well, key to finding purpose is context. Verse 16, thus the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Huh. Now, many Bibles have the phrase, for many are called, but few are chosen at the end of verse 16, but those don't appear in the better manuscripts. It's probably borrowed from Matthew twenty-two fourteen. 14. So what does it mean the last will be first and the first last? Well, think about it. It talks about equality. That's what the parable illustrates so well. It's a parable about equality Where? Verse 1, in the kingdom of heaven. That's the key here, okay? So in the kingdom of heaven, God's rule, it is an issue of equality. This parable is about equality in the kingdom of heaven. At the end, the first and the last and the same. They cross the line at the same time. They call this a dead heat race. All the laborers, whether hired early or late, receive one denarius. They all get the exact same pay or reward, if you want, for their work. Now look at verse chapter 19 of verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Oh, that's interesting. Same phrase, but inversed. Actually, that probably should have been verse 1 of chapter 20. 
makes perfect kind of sandwich, you know, bread, meat, bread here. So we have verse 30 and verse 16 of chapter 20 being the same with the parable in between. Again, the idea is equality. So we have two verses on the beginning and the end of the parable that talk about equality. About what? Ah, well, we got to go further back in the context. Do you remember what the whole chapter 19 is? At least, uh, yeah, basically all of it after, uh, as of beginning of verse 16. It's the story of the rich young ruler. The story of the rich young ruler. And in verse 16, he said, What good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the whole discussion from, for the half, last part of uh, chapter 19 is on how to inherit eternal life. Verse 17, if you want to enter life. Verse 21, if you want to be perfect, you shall have treasures in heaven. Then he says in verse 23 that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Verse 24. In verse 25, who then can be saved? You see, the context of this parable of the laborers then is clearly salvation, eternal life, the final destiny of all believers. Now, it's interesting, as the young rich ruler walks away, verse 27, Peter says, Behold, we have left everything and followed you, and then what will it be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you have followed me in this generation, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, shall receive many times as much, and shall inherit eternal life. See, Peter says, Young rich ruler walks away and says, hey, Jesus, look, we have followed you and sacrificed everything. What's in it for us? Jesus says, eternal life. When you follow Jesus Christ, when he saves you, you get eternal life. That's what he says to Peter. You get eternal life. That's your ultimate reward, eternal life. That's what Jesus says. No matter what the sacrifice is, whether you sacrifice a lot or a little, you get eternal life. Whether you are hired at the beginning of the day or hired at the end of the day, whether you worked hard 12 hours or just one hour, at the end, you get eternal life. That's what he's saying here. You go, but wait a minute. Why did it take so long to say that? I mean, for example, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Hey, he could have said it in a lot shorter here, just one verse. John did, one verse. But when you think about it, it's interesting. Every time you share the gospel with someone, this is what you tell them. You say, you know, you're a sinner. Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead for you. If you trust Jesus Christ and embrace him as your Lord and Savior, you will get what? Forgiveness of sins and what do you tell them? Eternal life. That's what you tell people. That's what I tell people in France, everywhere. You can also say this in Ephesians 1. Hey, if you come to Christ, he will bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ that you should be holy and blameless before him. You could say it like that. person probably won't really understand it very well. Okay, but it's true. If you come to Christ, he will, he will make you holy and blameless before him and give you eternal life. That's what the gospel is, folks. Despite my sin, I can receive eternal life. It's incredible. So you go, okay, well, that's kind of cool. But did it need that much space to say that? Yes. This leads to the third and last principle, the principles. 
are there principles in this parable that, that come out of it that will help us understand the grace of God a bit better? Yes, and this is what I'd like to show you now. I'm going to show you three principles, okay? Three principles. Number one, one of the principles that I think is a real mind-blower here is that the grace of God shines when you consider the differing lengths of service people have for the Lord. Now remember, go back to the parable. Some people worked 12 hours, long day. Others, one hour, short day. They all received one denarius at the end. Well, go with me to Genesis 5. Let me show you something real interesting. Genesis 5, you know this story, maybe not in this context. It's the story of Enoch. And Enoch, in verse 21, it says, And Enoch lived 65 years, and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So we find out here that there's this guy called Enoch, and he walked with God for 300 years. Now, folks, I'm 62, and I'm tired, okay? I mean, can you imagine walking faithfully with God for 300 years? That's like 240 more years for me. That's a long time. And then it says God took him. Well, when he took Elijah in the same way in 2 Kings 2.11, it says that he was taken up by a whirlwind to heaven. So Enoch, like Elijah, was suddenly raptured, taken out, and he was taken to heaven. 300 years with God, boom, goes to heaven. Now go with me to Luke chapter 23. This is cool. Luke 23, verse 33, you know the story. It's Jesus and the two thieves on the cross. And Chapter 23, verse 33, And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminal, one at the right and the other on his left. Now there's a discussion that happens, verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed... And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Ladies and gentlemen, this man believed in Jesus for what? How long between that moment and the time he died? An hour? Six hours? We don't know. Let's say an hour. Well, let's say six hours. Can you believe that this man believed and trusted in Jesus Christ for less than six hours, let's say it was, and he got the same heaven as Enoch who walked with God for 300 years. They got the exact same heaven. You know, when I became a Christian in 1976 in India, I had only one desire. I want to lead everybody I knew to Christ, including my family. So by the grace of God, I was able to lead several of my family to Christ, including my grandmother. But my grandfather, who was in Oklahoma, really resisted the gospel. I tried everything. It just didn't work. So one day I was back in Switzerland. I got a phone call. Your grandfather just died. So my heart sank. The nurse called back. She said, "Um, I want to tell you what happened with your grandfather. I said, what? 
So she says, well, your, your grandfather was in his deathbed at the hospital, and I was next to him. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, he woke up. With all the strength he had left, he pushed himself up. Then he spread out his arms. Then he said, Lord Jesus, forgive me for all my sins. And then he fell back into bed, and he died. Now, I don't know my grandfather's heart, only God knows that. But if my grandfather truly repented, truly embraced Jesus Christ as his Savior, do you realize that my grandfather, who believed maybe 10 or 15 seconds before he died, has the same heaven as a thief on the cross who believed maybe for six hours and the same heaven as Enoch who walked with God for 300 years. I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, is that fair? Is it fair that my grandfather, who believed for a few seconds, would have the same heaven as a man who walked faithfully with God for 300 years? The answer is no. That is not fair. That is grace. That's what grace is. That God would grant someone the same heaven no matter how long they walk with God. See, this is the first principle in the parable. Whether you're 12 hours or one hour or six hours or noon or whatever, you get the same denarius. Folks, this is what gets me excited about evangelism. I mean, you know, you preach to anybody, man, anybody. Because if they trust Christ, you know what they get? They get the same heaven as I got, or as I'm getting, or as I have. Uh, and I would tend to put that in. It's now. It's now. I've got heaven, okay? I mean, I've got eternal life. Heaven's coming. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, you're telling them, you will get eternal life. What an encouragement. What an encouragement. You can see a life completely change in a second when they embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. The only thing is we need a bit of courage to tell the gospel to people. So that leads to the second principle of God's grace that we see in this parable. See, God's grace shines forth, secondly, when you consider the different sacrifices that Christians have to make to follow Christ. Now, th- this is a disturbing one, but this is really exciting. You see, again, back to the parable. Some guys work 12 hours. I, I worked in a kibbutz in Israel. I was picking olives there. I mean, it's brutal. When noon comes around, I mean, it's just like hot. Kind of like here, I think, probably a similar kind of, kind of a weather and heat in the summer. It just like pounds down on you. Well, this parable illustrates that some of those guys worked really hard. Others and I was thinking about the guy at 5, you know, hey, do you want to go work in my fields at 5 p.m.? You know, cool breeze. Yeah, sure, no problem. So you kind of walk over there and pick a few grapes. Never one sweat, no dirt. It's like, you know, you're still shining. A few grapes, boom, one denarius. You're going, are you serious? You're getting the same as this guy that's been there for 12 hours. He's filthy, he's sweaty, he's dirty. And this guy's like, yeah, boom, 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 boom. Same deal, come on. See, what this is illustrating is that some people in their Christian lives have it brutal. Some people come to Christ in, in, in countries where it is brutal to be a Christian. Let me show you something in Hebrews, Hebrews 11. 
Though it's talking about Old Testament saints, the principle is the same. It's always disturbed me. Verse 35. Verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. Listen to this. They were stoned. Here's the one that I don't like. They were sawn in two. Can you imagine being arrested for your faith, being stretched on some table, they pull out a saw and they start sawing you in two. That's exactly what happened. I mean, that is like so far from my reality and maybe yours also. They were tempted, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes on the ground. I mean, it's incredible. If you ever come to France, there's a Reformation tour in Geneva, but there's another place, needs a little extra time, you go to the center of France to a place where there's a museum called the Musée du Désert. And uh, the Huguenots were the French Christians. They were called Huguenots. They were evangelicals back in the 1600s. And in the 1702 to 1704, it was a brutal time of persecution. Louis XVI was the sun king who built Versailles. He also uh, did not like Christians at all. And he had to put an army together called les Dragons du Roi, the King's Dragons. And their goal was to go out, find Protestants in France, especially in the central area with a lot of mountains they could hide. And the dragons would be sent out, and they were given one order. Make those Protestants recant back to Catholicism. Anything goes to do it. Anything. You could rape. You could kill. You could torture. You could do anything. I mean, I've got pictures in my book that are apt, that'll, that'll, they turn your stomach, actually. If you come to the Reformation in Geneva, I mean, it's just brutal what they did. Well, if you were a pastor in those days, you got the worst. What they did with pastors, they would have a huge wheel, like a cart wheel, pretty big, the size of a man. And they'd build a platform like here and put another platform and then put this wheel that would turn. And they would strap the pastor on like this on that wheel. Then the uh, executioner would take a metal bar and he would start with the feet. He would take that metal bar and he would whack and break the bones in his feet. And he would start going up the leg and just break it. Bang, 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 bang. Then he would go to the other leg and start breaking every bone. Bang, 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 bang. Then he would take the hands and start bang, 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 and break, shatter every bone in the pastor's body, making sure he didn't bleed or die. Torso all the way up to here. Just smash this body to pieces in front of everyone, publicly. And then let him die. Take a day, two days, three days to die. Wives of pastors would be sent to the prison called La Tour de Constance. We've been there. Massive prison, a round building. The walls probably half the size of the stage. No kidding. Massive. And there they would be put into jail. And there was a famous Marie Durand. She was a, a woman, a, an evangelical woman. She went in there, and she was in there for 38 years. Every week, a priest would come and say, Ma'am, you can walk out of here if you recant right now. Instead, she wrote, and you can see this, you can look it up, resisted, resist, she carved that in stone, you can still see it today. And she stayed in there for 38 years, refusing to recant. And then the children of pastors and pastors' wives would be sent to um, uh, monasteries or, co- or equivalent or um, convents to be brainwashed back into the Catholic faith. So if you come to my home, my office is in the garage in the back. Really neat office. I got a lot of family pictures. But I got one or two that are my favorite. A picture of my wife, Meg. And right next to it, a picture of the prison. La Tour de Constance. 
And that's to remind me every time I look at that picture that if I had been a pastor in 1702, I would have received the wheel, she would have received the prison, and our kids would have been brainwashed in some monastery. So I think to myself, wow, how some people have suffered for the gospel is just unbelievable. And still today, people are being persecuted, Christians all over the world. But you know, it's interesting. Not everyone is persecuted like that. And where are they, by the way, all those people that persecuted for Christ? Well, it's pretty easy, right? Heaven, eternal life, no problem. Rewards, big time, right? But you know what? Not everyone suffers for Christ in the same way. Others seemingly sacrifice little or nothing in their lifetimes. They are born in free and prosperous nations. They have great jobs. They accumulate wealth. They invest. They purchase homes and cars, motorcycles, boats. They have good health. They have good health insurance. They live in countries with complete religious liberty. They can teach and preach and evangelize freely. They can dream Christian dreams, open Christian schools and universities and seminaries. They can own Bibles and write Christian books and have radio and TV programs. They can have cool websites. Folks, for some people, the Christian life almost looks somewhat easy. In fact, I've been a missionary for 33 years. Honestly, I tell people, I have never shed one drop of blood for the gospel. Oh, some people think I'm a religious kook. I am, okay? Some people think, you know, they don't like me. Some people, I've been cursed at. People just don't like evangelicals. But that's it. That's it. And I think to myself, is it fair that people who have suffered so little, like me, maybe like you, is it fair that I would get the same heaven as one of those pastors that got the wheel, as those pastors' wives who were for 38 years in the Tour de Constance, and as those kids that were sent off to be brainwashed, is it fair that I would get the same heaven as them? No, that is not fair. You know what that is? That is grace, pure grace, that I would be hired at the last hour and suffer so little compared to those who were hired at the beginning and suffered so much. Folks, I mean, we are so blessed. So blessed. And that leads to the last third point, which is real short. And there's a lot more we could draw out of this, but this is just three that I have loved so much. The grace of God shines in this parable thirdly when you consider the incredible patience that God has toward wayward believers. This is really uncomfortable too, you know. You know when pay time came? You know the guys that were hired first, 12 hours? They grumbled. Hey, not fair. Not fair. They grumbled and they grumbled and they grumbled. How can those guys receive the same as us when we sweat and work so hard? You know what's amazing about this parable? Those guys who grumble so much, they got their denarius as well. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) That's where I see God's grace splash over this Bible, man. All those who work in the vineyard, even those whose attitudes sometimes stink. And guess what? Christians' attitudes sometimes stink. Christians can do some pretty stupid things, right? And I I don't know you, but (laughs) I'm not going to point at anybody. 
But they say when you point at someone, the thumb's pointing at you, right? So I just point at myself, and I can tell you, you know what? I can do some stupid things. You probably can too. And what's incredible is that God's grace and forgiveness is even there for you and me. We have been promised eternal life. My sin's already forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that's incredible. Because you know what? I deserve only one thing from God, and so do you. That is eternal hell. And yet God's grace, boom, picked me off that street in New Delhi, India. And God just gave me the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Wow. So let me just end with these last couple of principles. Just last, last final thoughts. Number one. Life is not fair. Life is grace. Think of it often. You know what? Here's my practical application. Complain a little less in life. Lord, help me to complain a little less in life. And be more grateful. Filled with gratitude as I look at this grace that has been shed on us. Number two, accept with joy whatever sacrifice is asked of you. Yeah, sometimes we have to sacrifice. So... Christ sacrificed everything for us. Accept it with joy. It's hard sometimes. It takes a lot of prayer and perseverance. But you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Number three, all who receive, all who come to Christ receive heaven. Everybody, even people you don't like that are Christians. Christians can have people they don't like. But if they know Christ, they're going to heaven too. Some people don't like the French. Guess what? A lot of French people I know are going to be in heaven right next to you and vice versa. A lot of French people don't like Americans. Well, get used to it now because eternity is a long time to be with someone, okay? So just people you like, give them a little bit of a break and go, okay, Lord, you know, you've saved them. Praise the Lord. Number four, if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ yet. You don't know this grace. What are you waiting for? I mean, why would you wait? Why would you say no to this kind of grace? It's a free gift. Why would you say no? One reason only, because you love your sin more than Christ. Oh, I pray and I beg that one day, soon, maybe this morning, you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, Christ is way superior to my sin. He's ready to forgive it and give you eternal life. That's a pretty good deal, folks. Why would you put that away? And finally, now you understand why we are missionaries and why I hope all missionaries would answer the same thing. Why are we missionaries? Because of God's grace in our lives. And the only thing we want to do now is to go and tell others they can experience that same grace. So I'd like to thank you for having invested in that cool car that we have now, okay? And that really, really helped us to continue to do the job legally, since our other car was not legally. But thank you for your investment. And just pray for us. Pray. I'm 62, trying to pray for the future and what's planned and how we can continue to serve the Lord. So if you would just pray for us, that would be really great. And thank you again for being here this morning. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much. <laughs>